the larger catechism. The idea simply that the confession, the shorter and the larger catechism each had a purpose. And so I hope as we go through this, you'll understand what the purposes were and make use then of the appropriate documents depending upon the kind of teaching you're doing or the kind of learning you're doing. Anyway, let's all bow in prayer just a minute. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're allowed the freedom to study the Bible. And we just simply ask that you would bless us and cause us to come to a knowledge of the truth. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as far as the history goes, it's fascinating, and I won't take just a minute, but the confessions or the, the, the assembly at Westminster began in 1643, and it went through 1649. The actual story begins in uh, uh, 1536, the way I tell it. And that is when William Tyndall died. And the reason I chose that year is because 100 years later in 1636, Charles I passed an ordinance that required that all the churches in England, Scotland, and Ireland come into conformity with the Anglican form of worship so that all the churches then had the same liturgy that you use. And the, the Presbyterians weren't having it. The Scots weren't going to join the Anglicans, the Anglicans and worship the way the Church of England did. That led to what was known as the National Covenant that Scotland pledged to in two years later in 1638. When Scotland made the pledge, that meant that a conflict occurred between England and Scotland. Charles I was already at odds with his own parliament over authority in the kingdom of England. He hadn't called a parliament in 11 years. He had disbanded them, even though he was still king. And so you have the English king, the, the, the monarchy that claimed to be the authority over the entire realm of England. You had parliament who had the um, right and had been, had not, not a new right, but a, they had for years had the right to establish the laws that, the, that govern the, the kingdom. And then all of a sudden you've got the church thrown in the mix when the Anglican church tries to impose itself on the Scottish church. And all this, the short of it is that it led to a, single, a civil war. Now the civil war would not start for several more years. In the meantime, uh, Charles I is uh, imprisoned, put in the Tower of London by Parliament. Eventually, he's beheaded in 1649. In order to uh, encourage the Scots to join with Parliament in the war against the king, another covenant was entered into in 1643, and that's what's talked about in this document that I've given you. In 1638, the National Covenant defending the Reformed faith was signed by the Scots. The king's regulations regarding an Anglican form of worship were declared abolished. And the Scots threat of armed resistance required the king to, to recall Parliament. 
Scott, uh, Charles dissolved it almost immediately and called another only, be, only to be impeached and confined to the Tower of London. So in 1643, Parliament and the King go to war, and Parliament acts an ordinance of the Lords and Commons in Parliament for the calling of an assembly of learned and godly divines and others to be consulted by the Parliament for the, for the settlement of the government and liturgy of the Church of England and for indicating and clearing of the doctrine of said church from false aspersions and interpretations. That is what they wrote concerning this Westminster Assembly. It would come up with the Westminster Confession of Faith two years later, three years later. Of that assembly, there were 151 members, 10 lords, 20 commoners, 121 English clergy, and there were moderate Episcopalians, Presbyterians, Independents, Erastians. Erastians believed that the uh, monarchy had the sole authority in all civil and religious matters. They were pretty much ignored. Um, anyway, they held 1,163 sessions, and the Episcopalians generally refused to participate simply because they uh, hadn't been called to this convocation by the king. Anyway, that's kind of the history of this thing. And the Scots were not allowed to vote at Westminster, but 30 of them were uh, invited to come and participate as uh, debating members. Come on in. We're talking about the confessions, Howard. Anyway, they were, they were uh, debating members, and they played greatly uh, into the forming of the confession. As you look at the way the confession was actually put together, the first year they spent in formulating a directory of, of worship and discipline, and, and uh, it's what we now have as the Book of Church Order. The years two and three, uh, they actually uh, put together the confession of faith. And then year four and five, they went into the larger and shorter catechisms. And in 1648, they submitted the work. They had submitted it previously, and it was turned back to them by Parliament because they had not included any Scripture citations. And so they were asked to put the citations, uh, tax of citations to the various declarations that they made to prove what they claimed doctrinally was right according to what Scripture taught. And anyway, in, in 1648, uh, it was submitted again and accepted in its entirety, the Confession of the, uh, and, the, and the Catechisms. And in 1649, when the Civil War broke out and Oliver Cromwell took power, he was an independent. And anyway, the, the assembly was disbanded. They had been uh, put together under the authority of Parliament, and Parliament was disbanded at that time, just for a short period of time during the Revolution. Now, as far as the importance of all this to you, the catechisms two shorter, one shorter, one larger. Originally, the effort was made to establish one catechism for the church. And the problem was you had uh, men that were characterized as, or, or Christians that were characterized as children, as um, 
fathers, and uh, what, what John says, the other is not sons. What is it? Anyway, the Bible talks about different levels of expertise in the Christian faith so that Nathaniel, sitting with Clark over there, is only three years old, he can begin to learn some of the confession, or I say the confession of the catechisms, but it wouldn't do him any good to learn the larger catechism. The shorter catechism would be appropriate for Nathaniel and uh, for Claire and for Walter Clark and for your children. But as far as you go, y'all are mature Christians, and so the, the larger catechism is what you ought to be using in order to encourage your own faith. And I want to show you why here in just a minute. Now, as far as the, the catechism itself, when I learned in trying to, to understand these, um, included only those truths presented in Scripture. An exposition of the Apostles' Creed was excluded. That's what's what I learned, and the reason the Apostles' Creed was, was excluded simply because it's not found anywhere in Scripture. It is a statement doctrinally that was derived from Scripture, but it's not inspired. When you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ is only Son, our Lord, and see by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffering the Pontius Pilate, you know the, you know the creed. But it was still, even though it is accurate in our opinion, it is not the inspired Word of God, and so they chose to exclude it. But they did include things like the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, simply because those are the inspired Word of God. And so I want you to understand that they were very, very careful in what they wanted you to hear and to learn as Christians. The whole point of this, in trying to understand why this was such importance, uh, here it is, the year 1643, for the first 1,500 years of the church, Traditions and uh, the magisterium of the church, the authorities that, that governed the church, had told Christians what they should believe. And all of a sudden, when William Tyndall comes along in England in the early 1500s, the same time Martin Luther is in Germany, John Calvin is in Geneva, uh, or he actually started in Strasbourg. But um, the whole point that, that of the Reformation was to try to come to an understanding of salvation so that people weren't uh, condemned to hell because of ignorance. And that's what was happening. The, the, the confession makes it plain that the two things that save you, two things that God has given you, are the Word and the Spirit. And the, and the confession says that over and over and over again. And it is arrogant and it is foolish for us to ignore the Word we have the ability to read it every day for ourselves. Everybody doesn't have that freedom, but we've got that right now, and be thankful for it. And then we have the opportunity to engage the Holy Spirit as we pray and as we believe, uh, as we uh, obey. The Holy Spirit is the reason that all these things are possible to us, God in us. When we are saved, when we're born again, the Holy Spirit enters into each one of us. Now, you can quench the Spirit. You can be disobedient. You have that opportunity. And the Spirit might depart from you for a time, but you'll never lose God's Spirit. Once, once the Spirit of Christ has been put into a man, it's there from now on. Now, 
As far as the confessions go, certain things were talked about at length in the larger catechism that were not talked about at all or very little in the shorter catechism. And the one that I pulled out that was of interest is simply the church. The shorter catechism talks about the church just one time. But in the larger catechism, the church is mentioned 26 times. And to give you an idea um, in terms of the scholasticism or, or the, um, the doctrinal depth of the larger catechism, Christ's lordship of the church is developed. He is shown in the larger catechism as the king of the church, the prophet to the church, as the one who gathers and defends the church, the savior only of his body, the church. The uh, larger catechism teaches that the sacraments are instituted in and for the church and administered under the authority of the church and for prayer on behalf of the church. Also, the means of salvation, the word, the sacraments, and prayer are clearly tied to the church. And so that you miss if all you deal with is a shorter catechism. Now, learning the catechism is, is a daunting task. I know that our preachers are required to learn the catechism. I wish Daniel were here. I'm assuming it's the larger catechism. I'm not sure. Uh, that is one of the ordination requirements. As a child, I learned the shorter catechism. It's 106 questions, and it's something that a child is able to do. And I remember standing up in front of the church and, and receiving a little award because I had been one of the, the children in the class that had learned the catechism. You had to go through and you had to answer correctly all 106 questions. A larger catechism of 196 or 7 questions. In any event, the catechism then is something that gives you a depth of understanding and it is, well, as you will see as we go through this, it is a little more readable than the confession of faith uh, in the way that it puts together the facts that, that help govern you as a Christian. So if you would, go to page 2, and I purposely set this up so you can look at page 2 and 3 together because 2 is the confession and the shorter catechism. 3 is the larger catechism. And so, hey, Christian, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize you didn't have one. No, I've got plenty. I'm an idiot. Now, there's some more right here if we need them. Now, let's start. Oh, at the top, I've just simply uh, given you the, the pledge that the various uh, members of the assembly um, swore to when they became members. And then every week they'd go back and they would reaffirm their uh, promise that whatever they chose to present as a uh, point of the confession or of the catechisms would indeed be something they could support from Scripture and Scripture alone. That's what that top declaration is. Now, as far as the Westminster Confession of Faith, what I have chosen is the portion of it that deals with the, with the covenant. That's just because I like the covenant. Y'all are stuck with stuff I like to talk about. 
And so the covenant is one of my, uh, it, it, it gives me a great deal of pleasure to, to read about the covenant. Nevertheless, in the Westminster Confession, um, I've just quoted uh, the second and the third paragraphs. If you go back, uh, here, here's the confession if you want to, want to look at it, but if you go back and look, the first paragraph simply talks about in, in uh, chapter 7 of God's covenant with man, the fact that the distance between God and man is so great that he decided or he chose to present to us by means of covenant the truths by which we must live. That's what the first paragraph says. And the reason then that I stopped after three is because after three, uh, the assemblymen, the members of the assembly, simply uh, go through the, the um, covenant of works and the covenant of grace, and then they point out the fact that this is part of our inheritance, that we have an estate, or as they call it a testament, they say the covenant is often referred to as a testament. And in Hebrews, that's developed. But the testament is simply referring to the idea that Christ died to establish the covenant. The reason that you're here today is the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is what sealed the covenant for you. If Christ had not died for you, God's covenant promises would not apply to you. It was necessary that Christ die. Okay. And you all understand these things, so I'm telling you things that that are not new to you. Nevertheless, the first covenant made, and this is 7.2 in the confession now. This is the confession. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and his posterity upon condition of perfect personal obedience. Now, the operable word there is promised. It's not something that you can expect apart from God's pledge to you, and that is the promise that's talked about. God has made the promise, and that's why Ken can be certain that it applies just as it is written here. Now, the promise was made to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect personal obedience. And so there's a promise that's been made, and it's been made to Adam and to those of us then that have descended from Adam, Obedience is the operable word, and man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offered unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him, that they may be saved, and promising to give all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And again, the word promise is used. And so understand covenant is the promise. We were on a cruise years ago and there were some preachers in the cruise and a lot of times, I don't, we've, we've been on two or three, or oh, actually been more, maybe, maybe a half dozen cruises in our lives. It's been a long time, but normally they would get a preacher to preach Sunday service. And we heard some interesting services um, there weren't any Presbyterians in the crowd. Anyway, the last time, I'll never forget, they let the little cruise director give the, the sermon instead of calling one of the preachers in, in the, on the cruise and a volunteer. 
Anyway, her description of what God did is because man sinned, God came with a backup plan. That's how she characterized the covenant of grace. And I always thought to myself, um, thank goodness God didn't come with this as a backup plan. The covenant of works and the covenant of grace, as we refer to them, are all the same covenant. The difference is simply Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about that as we get into this. Anyway, in looking at the confession, he talks about, or the men talked about the first covenant with man of works, life promised to all men for obedience. And because of the fall, the second covenant of grace, life was offered to sinners by Jesus Christ through faith for salvation for those ordained to life by the Holy Spirit who works in man the ability to believe. Now, that's the sum total of the information that the confession has given to you. And that is adequate for Gary's salvation. If Gary knows that and nothing else, those are the facts that you would present to God on Judgment Day. And having received Jesus Christ as Lord, you can depend on that statement then as a fair declaration of why God would save you. Now, in the shorter catechism, there's not any additional information to speak of. You look at what special act of providence did God exercise towards man in the estate wherein he was created. This, by the way, was, was written by, by Reverend John Wallace. I told you that it was decided that two different um, covenants, I mean, two different confessions would be drawn. So they asked John Wallace to... Uh, chair of the committee to draw the, the shorter catechism. Anthony Tuckney was asked to chair the committee to draw the larger confession. And so the two men went about it with the idea that Wallace, being a, a preacher, wanted to give something that was elemental. It was something that a, a child could understand and did a good job of it. And then Tuckney goes about it in a much more scholarly way just because of his mandate. Nevertheless, when God created man, he entered into a covenant of life. And I've underlined covenant of life. Understand that when the church doctrines are presented to you, the idea of the confession is to try to put the Bible together in a way that is logically sensible and is fairly descriptive of what God has done. But understand that it is something that is um, in large part left to a man to try to understand and to describe. And so when you look at the, the Trinity, for instance, you're not going to find the Trinity anywhere in the Bible. Natalie, you got a copy of this thing? You go, okay. The Trinity is something that we use to describe... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not in Scripture. And there are several descriptive terms that we use. One that is not found in Scripture is covenant of works. Now, the understanding that you would get from Scripture in trying to, in trying to um, define God's covenant requirement of men, God simply put together a requirement for Adam and and for Eve, 
and they were allowed to eat of, of some fruit, not of the, of the fruit of the knowledge of, tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is simply called a covenant of works because it fairly describes in the covenant requirement that Adam found himself under. And so the, the reason I point this out to you is John Wallace described it as a covenant of life. This comes out of the book of Malachi. This was a covenant that was a description of the covenant God made with Levi at that time, a covenant of life and peace. And the whole idea of the covenant of works is it was a covenant of life. Had Adam kept the covenant, he would have um, earned for himself the right to life. But as you know, he chose not to obey God, and so we all know what happened. But in any event, there are certain terms like that that are helpful as a child in trying to understand then what God has done for us. Now, the other word that is frequently used in the confessions is the word estate. You're going to see that over and over again, and I've tried to mark it here. Man is not in a state of righteousness in Christ. It is more than that. A state is a condition. A state of well-being, a state of health, whatever you want. It's a condition. An estate indicates not only the state, but the ownership of the estate. And so you're going to see that these uh, assemblymen, the, the members of the assembly, the divines, over and over again to talk about the estate. Gina has not only the right to Christ, but it is her inheritance. It is an inherited right. That's why the testamentary trust, the testamentary idea of, of Christ uh, was brought out earlier in the confession. When Christ earned righteousness, he earned it for himself and for his seed. And it's something that Christ then gave to us. He gave to John, and John cannot lose it. It is his property. And so that, when you see the idea of a state, understand that that is part of your property. What special act of providence did God exercise toward man in the estate wherein he was created, God, when God created man, he entered into the covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil upon the pain of death. Now, there's a little more information here than uh, we see in the confession as, as you develop the shorter catechism. And in the in Catechism question 20, did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God, having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, created some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. And so you again see a declaration and as you look at the confession and the shorter catechism, you're receiving what God did for you. And again, that is what is necessary for you to claim Jesus Christ. It's what God has done. The, the larger catechism is interesting because what it does is it also 
or it expands what God has done to tell you why he's done it and how he's done it. And that's the beauty of the larger catechism. We'll get into that in just a minute. But as you look at the... Um, As you look at something like the Shorter Catechism, it says that God, having out of His mere great, out of His mere good pleasure from all eternity, uh, elected some to ever or elected some to everlasting life. Um, the implication is that He chose some men, and that might imply a quality that is in a man deserving of life. In other words, that might imply some sort of a work. The larger catechism is going to make certain that you understand that that work was done for you by Jesus Christ. You are, you are saved by work. It's just not your work. Now, Well, now let's go to let's go to the larger catechism. I need to apologize to y'all that when I originally was told that this was going to be a, a responsibility while Mike was gone, the assumption I made was it would be for two weeks. So I found out this morning Mike's going to teach next week. So I'm trying to put this together in, in one class. So if you have questions, stop me and ask me. But it's going more quickly than I had wanted it to. Now, as far as the larger catechism goes, three questions are used to cover the same covenant promises that God has made. And it's the larger catechism, questions 30, 31, and 32. And it's on page three of this little handout. And remember, what the larger catechism is going to try to do is not simply elemental, and it's not just going to tell you what has been done. It's going to tell you why God's done it and how God has done it. And as I thought about the, the importance of that to us, I like, the, I like the what God has done. And it makes perfect sense to me. I understand that in and of myself, I'm toast. I, I could not obey God. I, could not, I would not even want to obey God. So that if salvation depended upon me alone, I'm going to go straight to hell. It's just that easy. So the question that I have then for myself is, knowing what has been done, why would God do that for me? And how did he go about doing it for me? And it allows me then to come to a... a uh, a love for God, a greater, a, a deeper love for God, it, it goes from simply a thankful heart, thankful for my salvation, to a loving heart. And that's what God is trying to develop in each one of us. He wants John Coleman to grow in his faith, but the whole point of your growth is to learn to love God. That's the greatest commandment. And it's something that doesn't come naturally from me. I don't know about the rest of you. Nevertheless, as we talk about the, the whys and the hows, it'll give you a better understanding of why um, 
or, or of the loving nature of God, and then it will encourage you to reciprocate in that loving nature. So now this is what the question 30 of the larger catechism says. Does God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God does not leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery into which they fell by the breach of the first covenant, commonly called the covenant of works, but out of his mere love and mercy. Now that's the first time we've seen love and mercy introduced in the discussion of the covenant, looking at the confession or the shorter catechism. So this is something that is uh, expanding then the scope of our understanding He delivers his elect out of it and brings them into an estate of salvation by the second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. And so God does not leave the implication, or <clears throat> I'm going to say the implication, uh, the reference then or the point of all this is that this is something that God has done. God does not leave. It doesn't say that man has joined God. Man's come back to God. It says, God does not leave all to perish, they having disobeyed God by breaking the covenant of works, but out of love and mercy delivers the elect out of sin and misery, bringing them into an estate of salvation by the covenant of grace. Now, very little is said about the covenant of works, and that really is of little consequence to us. Adam enjoyed the covenant of works. I have read at least one author that suggested that Adam sinned the very first day he had the opportunity. That covenant of works was very short-lived. I don't know that that's true. It may have been a thousand years, but some people believe that Adam was um, led away immediately once he was given his freedom without God's influence. Anyway, God does not leave those of us, to perish. But the covenant of grace then is the, the blessing that we enjoy. Now it says here that with whom was the covenant of grace made? And this is important to you. The covenant of grace was made with Christ, the second Adam, and in him all the elect as his seed. Now why is it that the second Adam reference is important to you? Why would they say the second Adam? Adam was a man. Okay. And it was absolutely necessary that Christ become a man because otherwise he could not suffer and die in your place. There's nothing divine about any of us here. We're all just dust. I read somewhere that if you tallied up the value of all the chemicals and the makeup, we're mostly water, but if you could take the water out, there's something like $3.97 worth of chemicals that God used to, to create each one of us. Anyway, the point is that Christ is a man, and that was necessary that he live and die that he suffer um, under the threat of damnation, if you will, the same way that you and I do. Now, it goes on to say, 
that God made the covenant with Christ. Lots of folks make the mistake that God made the covenant with us. He didn't make the covenant with us. He made the covenant with Christ. The reason we know that is if you read Ephesians, the beginning of Ephesians, it says that we were established in Jesus Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. And there are other references there that would imply then that everything that God has done for us was done even before creation. Now, the Reformers came up with a new covenant description. They call it the covenant of redemption, and you'll see it referred to here. But that, again, is not found in the Bible anywhere. It's like the Trinity. It's just not there. But they use it as a way to describe God's covenant establishment with Jesus Christ so that the God of the universe then decided before the creation of the world that he would redeem man and the the Trinity decided ahead of time exactly how that would occur. So God establishes the covenant, Christ satisfies the requirements of the covenant, and the Holy Spirit's the executor of the covenant. He's the one that delivers it to John and to Junior and all of you here. Each one had a part. And this was all something that was done before the foundation of the world. Anyway, uh, the covenant of grace was made with Christ as a second Adam and with him, with all the elect, as his seed. The idea of election then and a seed, and it goes back to Isaac and the promise was made to him. And it was a promise made to Abraham through Isaac, and Isaac being the the forebear of Christ, Christ being the seed. But you've all been joined to Christ as part of his seed. And yes, sir. Okay, Ken, what the, what the reformers would have told you is that we all live under a covenant of grace, and that is this covenant of redemption. It's the umbrella. Adam was given the opportunity to offer to God obedience for his own life and for your life and for my life since we are his offspring. And uh, he was given that apart from Christ in the sense that uh, if Adam had obeyed, it would have been by grace. Adam could not have obeyed apart from grace. And that's why the covenants that we enjoy are all a covenant of grace. In other words, if God had not influenced Adam to obey, Adam could not have obeyed. Uh, God allowed Adam the freedom to choose for himself And so God's grace did not lead Adam to offer the obedience that was necessary. I don't know if this is answering your question exactly, but... I'm just trying to see if if 
Yeah, he, that's right. He's that, that's right. Generally, I think so, yes. Now, as far as we see, we see in Christ the second Adam. He, he is God and man. So as a man, he fulfilled the covenant requirement. And we as his seed, and the reason we're his seed is we have been given to him before the foundation of the world. We also are characterized as having died with Christ. And the understanding is that in order for a seed to grow, what has to happen first? We've got to die. And so we died with Christ. We've been raised to him, raised with him to life. As far as the larger catechism in question 32, how is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? And this is more of a waterfall. The grace of God is manifested in the second covenant as he freely provides and offers to sinners a mediator and life and salvation by him, requiring as the condition of interest to interest them in him, promises and gives his Holy Spirit to all the elect to work in them that faith with all of the saving graces and to enable them unto holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and their thankfulness to God and as the way which he has appointed them to salvation. So God makes manifest his grace in the second covenant, freely providing and offering the sinners to sinners a mediator. This is the new covenant. When Jeremiah 31, 31 talks about uh, a new covenant, that new covenant is in Jesus Christ, and Ezekiel 36 talks about the same thing. God requires obedience. He requires it. And then God provides the obedience that is required. So that's why this is a covenant of grace. Uh, you have God then establishing the, the rules that you've got to play by. And then God is offering or, or making for you the obedience. He is working the obedience necessary for you to enjoy the, the blessings of obedience. Anyway, he freely provides and offers to sinners a mediator who works life and salvation, requiring of them faith to interest them in him, promises the Holy Spirit and gives the Holy Spirit to work in them faith and other saving graces. So again, he requires and he gives what he requires. enabling them to obey God in all holiness as evidence of the truth of God's promises and evidence of thankfulness to God for their appointment to salvation. Now, what I hope you will see in this, the benefit to you in trying to study the larger catechism. Now, in order to try to help you with that, there's one more thing I'd like to offer to you. I told you that originally the confession was submitted without scripture citations. 
And so the reformers went back and Parliament required that the citations be included. Uh, this particular last page shows you the citations that supported the larger catechism statements in questions 30, 31, and 32. And so let's go over them right quickly. This was from the work of a man named Johannes Voss. Question 30 then, how does God leave, uh, does God leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery? Question 30 uh, relies on 1 Thessalonians 5.9. God has appointed his elect to obtain salvation by Christ. So his, you see the election to obtain salvation by Christ. Mankind in sin and misery because of the breach of the covenant of works. So in Galatians 3, we see why man has to depend on God for this covenant of grace. It goes on in Titus 4, 3, uh, 4 through 7 to talk about the fact the elect are saved from sin by the kindness, love, and mercy of God. So salvation is pr provided by Christ. Man has breached the covenant of works, and it is the kindness, love, and mercy of God then that allows salvation or that calls salvation to be extended to you. Galatians 3.21 says there's no hope of salvation on the basis of our own works. So if you want to know why it is that, it's, that, that you can't satisfy God, you can go to Galatians 3.21. Salvation by works being impossible, God has provided another way by righteousness as a substitute. Uh, this follows, this Romans 3 follows 3, 7, uh, 117, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is the point at which Scripture, this is the hinge for the Reformation, the point at which uh, God declares that there's a righteousness that's been wrought for us in Jesus Christ and after 3.20 through 22, uh, you get into 3.23 and 3.24. I'll read it for you. And this is the most wonderful, most wonderful part of the Reformed theology. In 3.21, But now righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That's 3, 21 through 24. That's uh, the hinge of the Reformation right there. That is justification by faith, and that's where it starts. Now, in question 31, with whom was the covenant of grace made? Galatians 3 tells us the covenant of grace was made with Christ as Abraham's seed. Romans 5 tells us that Christ is the second Adam, and it tells why it's important that Christ be the second Adam so he can suffer as a man. And then Isaiah 53, the elect as Christ's seed, represented by Christ in the covenant of grace. Read that Isaiah Fifty-three, ten, and 11. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. 
And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. These are the kinds of scriptures that support the declarations that are made in this. And if, if you'll go back and tie the declarations to the scriptures, it's got to be over, uh, overwhelming to you. It's got to be a, grace of, a source of great joy. Finally, question 32 talks about how is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? Well, 3.15 tells Genesis 3.15 that a Redeemer is promised. And that has occurred uh, shortly after, well, immediately when God is um, confronted by Adam and Eve in the garden and they admit to their sin. And he says, I will uh, send a Redeemer. The, this is the first reference to the I will put my enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. Enmity enmity is hatred. So God is talking to Adam and Eve then and uh, to the the, uh, serpent. And to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, between the devil's offspring and God's children. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Well, Christ was struck but he was raised again to life. Uh, we, according to Scripture, are going to be the ones that are going to crush Satan under our feet. But that will be in Jesus Christ. Nevertheless, uh, a Redeemer from sin has been promised. Christ is promised as a covenant for the people. This is one of my favorite verses in Scripture. Isaiah says this not once but twice in Isaiah 42 and 49. 42 is the one that's referred to I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, talking to Christ. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open, to open the eyes of the blind, to free captives from prison. Again, in 49, because just as these have been used, um, in, starting in verse 8, This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. In the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. Christ is the covenant. He's our covenant. He's our covenant head. Um, Anyway, then John 6 tells us that Christ was appointed by God the Father to give men eternal life. That's no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me calls him. First John talks about eternal life is given in the Son of God. The requirement then is John 3.16. Faith is required as a condition of interest in Christ, and faith in Christ is needed to become a child of God. John 1.12. Proverbs says that God's Holy Spirit promised, is promised to his elect. Faith wrought in the elect Faith is wrought in the elect by the Holy Spirit. Galatians tells us that various graces are wrought in the elect by the Holy Spirit, and those are the fruits of the Spirit that you're familiar with. Ezekiel 36, the elect 
are enabled unto obedience by the Holy Spirit. So it's God's work in you that allows you to obey. And then good works of the elect are evidence of their faith, which we're told. You prove your faith not just um, or, or by your works. And then 2 Corinthians, by a good life, the elect show their thankfulness to God. And a Christian's good works are ordained by God that he should walk in them. So you show your thankfulness to God. Uh, it, it's something that God has ordained those good works that she should walk in them. Anyway, that gives you a, a mighty quick overview. Hopefully some of it will stick between the confession and the shorter and the larger catechisms. If you do decide to attack the larger catechism, use the scripture references. It's a slow process. 197 questions and it's an all-day job, but it's worth every minute that it takes. Uh, if you'll stop and think about, like I've told you, it's simply not the what God has done, but it's why he's done it and how he's done it. And it will absolutely um, change the way you look at what God has done for you and the way that you worship God. I guarantee it. All right. Well, thank you all very much for your, your attention. Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you that these times are times of learning, but they are times of worship. As we try to come to a knowledge of the truth, it is so that we might worship you in a manner that you have established, in a manner that's pleasing to you. When it's all said and done, we know that you must undertake for us in our learning and in our worship if it is to be pleasing in your sight, we also know that you have undertaken for us in Jesus Christ. And Almighty God, I would ask simply that you cause us all to close with Christ every day. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.